For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. On today's episode, we talk to Lydia Finette. And in one word, this episode is inspiration. Lydia is an American auctioneer, a speaker, an author, and a mother to three kids. She is the Global Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's Auction House. She has raised over a half a billion dollars for over 400 nonprofits worldwide and is the leading benefit auctioneer in the U.S., What we loved about Lydia is her ambition and drive. She shares her thoughts on failures and fears and just simply doing it anyway. She talks about recent experiences of working as an auctioneer in Germany and Saudi Arabia and tells us about her recent TV and movie deal from her new book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. All of this done with three young kids at home. She is one that never stands still, and I guarantee you that after you listen to her, you'll be wondering if perhaps there's a little bit more that you can do. As an aside, I'm pretty sure that I've convinced Jenny that we need our own TV and movie deal. Now let's listen to our conversation with Lydia Finette. Okay, Lydia, welcome to the show. We're so thrilled to have you. I'm so thrilled to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. Lydia, we have to hear your story. You are such a different guest for us with a different background. So tell us what your position is. I'd love to know what you actually do day to day and how you got into it. So I like to say that I have two jobs. I work during the day as the global managing director of strategic partnerships at Christie's. So I'm in charge of all of the partnerships for the company. And that's basically anyone who is not 
in the art world but wants to work with us in the art world, my department creates the partnership for that globally. And then my second job and the job which I think I focus on a lot in the evenings is running the benefit auctioneering program for Christie's, which is essentially anytime you've ever seen anything on TV where there's a charity gala where people are raising money for a nonprofit on stage, that is my job. I'm the person who gets on stage with a gavel and slams it down, gets the attention of the audience, and then hopefully raises hundreds of millions of dollars for a charity. Wow. And how did you get started? How did you, any interest in the auctioneering world? Well, it was funny. It really all started with an article that I read when I was in college about Christie's. I didn't come from an art collecting background. My parents weren't art collectors. They took us to museums, and I certainly understood that art was something, but I didn't really think of it as a business. I really thought of it as something that was just sort of sitting on your wall. And I read an article about Princess Diana's charity auction that took place at Christie's at some point when I was in college, and it really captured my imagination. And I honestly think that this is just who I am as a person, but if I see something in front of me that is something that I think would be a good fit for me, I really go after it with complete abandon. I talk about it endlessly, I tell everyone about it, and then I don't really stop until I get it. And that was kind of the case with this. I didn't really know anyone in the auction world, but I knew that if I talked about it enough, eventually someone might know someone who was in the auction world. And that was kind of what happened. My father, we were at a Christmas party and my father pulled me aside. He said, I remember you keep talking about this place called Christie's and I just met a young woman who just started working there. And I've had people over the years say, well, that just means you're really connected and that's how that happened. And I sort of laugh and say, this was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This was in New York City. So to be clear, it's not a place where art is something that you talk about all the time. Certainly we talk about LSU football all the time, but speaking about the auction world, it's not something that I heard a lot at our cocktail parties growing up or any parties growing up. Anyway, so long and short, I met the woman who was working there and she knew the head of the internship program. And so I applied for a paid internship during college one summer. And basically stalked the woman who was in charge of the internship program until I got it by calling her every single day for two weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what captivated you about that world? Did you want to actually be an auctioneer? No, at that point, I didn't really know enough about it to even understand that there was a job as an auctioneer. I just, in the article, thought it sounded very glamorous. These these are not selling points for a career, but I definitely thought it sounded amazing. And they were talking about how people got to travel all over the world. Travel is something that I've always loved to do and I've always been interested in. And just interfacing with people who have created worlds for themselves where they are able to purchase art. This, the entire article to me just seemed like the place that I wanted to be, which really didn't make very much sense because, again, it wasn't where I came from. Right. That's so cool. So tell us about the early days at Christie's. So I started when I was quite young and I was 21 years old. I just left college. I did an internship while I was in college and started basically right after I graduated. And I arrived and, you know, like any first job, it was a lot of learning and taking things in and understanding what I liked and what I didn't like. But honestly, I never really thought of it as a career. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made in my 20s, which I would say to someone, a woman who was listening, don't think that you're starting a job at the age of 21 and it's just something to do for fun. Really think about what you want to do because a career can be for the rest of your life and the seeds for what you want are planted at an early age where you're looking around, thinking about what you do and don't want to do with your career over the course of your life. 
So I basically started there. And as I was looking around, I noticed that, you know, in, in the evenings after everybody else left in the events department, the events team would accompany these benefit auctioneers who would go out and take auctions at charity galas. And so I used to volunteer my time to go with the charity auctioneers in spots so that, you know, if people were bidding in the room, I would help them by saying, oh, auctioneer, you know, sir, someone's bidding here. Or as things advanced a couple of years later, I would stand on stage with the charity auctioneers. And it was funny because art auctioneering is a very specific type of auctioneering. It's very serious. You're transacting millions and millions of dollars with each bid in most cases. And so you can't really be joking around. It's not sort of something that's supposed to be funny. It's really something that's supposed to be taken seriously. And you can throw in a lighthearted joke every once in a while. But for the most part, if you're spending that kind of money, you want to know that the person in charge is in charge. (laughs) Charity auctioneering, to me, just didn't seem like that. And as I stood on stage next to a lot of our art auctioneers who were all much older than me, predominantly men, they just always took them like the art auctions. And there was no room for humor and there was no room for entertaining the audience. And I saw that as a missed opportunity. And so when I was 24, they opened up charity auctioneering tryouts to the whole company. Previously, they had really been for our senior vice presidents and vice presidents in the company, but there were just so many auctions and they didn't have enough auctioneers. And I tried out and I passed and I was one of four people. I think I was solidly 10 to 15 years younger than almost any other auctioneer. And I was certainly one of the only women. <laughs> and the funny thing was, unlike the other auctioneers, I was so young. I didn't really have a family. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I moved to New York. And so the idea of going to a black tie, getting on stage and having fun seemed like a much better alternative than sitting in my apartment by myself. And I started taking auctions and I Honestly, by year one, it was probably sort of 50, 60 auctions. And then when everybody realized that I would take them late at night, even if they started at 11, or that I would take them on a Saturday or a Sunday night, they just set, kept sending me. And the funny thing about being sent to hundreds of auctions is that you get a lot of practice. And so there you go. Years later, I realized that I had so much practice that almost anything could go wrong in front of me, and I had probably seen it happen. And it really was the skill set that started it all for me. So Lydia, let me just ask, you brought these elements of humor and entertainment into your work. Did you have a background in comedy or theater or something that would have lent itself to this missed opportunity that you found? No, but I have three siblings. And part of what we do as a family is just make fun of each other endlessly. (laughs) So I do think I have a sense of humor. And I I definitely have used a sense of humor. My friends would always say, well, Lydia has a good sense of humor. But it's funny when you're on stage and you understand comedic timing looks like just because of years of practice. And I would understand how to pause after a joke and let it sink in as opposed to rushing through it. You know, I would use one joke one night that would then work for another event another night and realize it was something that I could actually use at any time. And so just little tricks, frankly, just by having a blank canvas night after night and being the only one on stage and really being the only person who could entertain the crowd. And that was, in my opinion, the only way to get money out of them. Those were the things that really helped me realize that. But what you must have had some obstacles or some challenges like being in such a male dominated industry with things that have been done this way for so long, like you just said, in the art auction world, like did people say, Lydia, you can't do that? It was more that, you know, I mean, if you imagine, and I say this to a lot of people when I'm giving speeches, if you were to close your eyes even right now and imagine what an auctioneer looks like, I would be the last thing that you think of, right? And I'm much older than I was when I started. And so if you can imagine people's reaction when the auctioneer walked in and it was a 24-year-old woman, 
they were absolutely stunned. I mean, in most cases, I can't even tell you how many times I was told, we'll just sit you at the kids' table, or you probably won't be able to handle this because you're young and also you're a woman, so you're probably a little quieter than the guys. And all of the things that I do and I still do as an auctioneer, like I never, ever drink before auctions, ever, because I used to think to myself, the age of 24, if I walked in and had a glass of wine before an auction and one thing went wrong, I would ruin my reputation. Whereas the guys that I trained with all drank heavily before the auction. They would bring drinks on stage with them. And even the way that I dressed when I first started was always so serious. I was always in a black suit. You know, I felt I wanted to be taken seriously and I wanted people to believe that I was good at what I did because I felt like I had to prove myself because I wasn't an older British gentleman. In fact, I was a young woman. But I think over time, what I realized was that that was actually my strength and that was the differentiator. And if I pointed that out, instead of being scared of it, and instead of wearing a black suit, I started to wear dresses that were brightly colored and heels and really played to the feminine side of my personality. I actually got great response for that because I was being authentic. And I think that that's a huge selling point. Authenticity is what people look for. It's what they trust in sales. And so bringing that to the table allowed me to overcome those obstacles. But certainly, I mean, I still face them now. I did an auction in Germany last year where I had so much pushback about the fact that I was a woman before I got there. Multiple calls asking whether or not I could handle the crowd of 900 people. And I remember saying to the director of the museum, I don't think you understand. I take auctions with 900 people once a week in New York. 900 900 people in a room is a Tuesday night. (laughs) So I think that we still have to prove ourselves, which is so frustrating, but I also feel like I'm fine doing it because I've done it for so long that I want to be seen in the way that I want other people to see me in the way that I believe in myself. So I'm happy to do it. That's so cool. So would you encourage, like, I just don't know anyone that's an auctioneer. Like that's just such a cool career choice. Like, would you encourage young women to consider this? Absolutely. And I think even if you are not someone who enjoys public speaking, I think that auctioneering is probably the scariest thing you could possibly do, especially if you don't like public speaking. But I think at the same time, it really pushes you to learn a totally new skill set. You know, if there is something that happens at any time and there's a microphone involved, people just shove me in the way of the microphone because they know I can handle it. And that's Mm -hmm. a great feeling because public speaking is a terrifying thing for so many people. It was terrifying for me when I started. But what I realized is it's practice. And so I would say to women out there, you know, go to a charity auctioneering class, take a comedy class, do something that allows you to hone that skill because you can use it standing up at a PTA meeting. You could use it standing up, giving a presentation. You can use public speaking your entire life. And whether or not you become an auctioneer, I promise it will be something that you use all the time. Mm-hmm. I watched some of your videos on your website, the Bruce Springsteen one, and it was like, <laughs> oh, and, and the, what was it, Anderson Cooper, I think, the box. And it was like, yes. you were mesmerizing. And I think it's because you do break the stereotypes. It's like, who is this woman? Like, all we know are the movies and like, you know, the British man in a suit. And you're not that. And it, I just couldn't take my eyes off you. And it was so fascinating and just seemed like a great, like a fun, I would love it. I think it's such a fun career. And you have to think on your feet and you have to add numbers up as you go. <laughs> Oh my God. And she's like, you know, like that part would stress me out. Well, it's funny because I was never good at math growing up. You know, it was one of those things that I've said to people my whole life. I'm like, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at math. But interestingly, if you were to see me on stage, especially during the paddle raise at the end, which Mm -hmm. is where you're basically starting at the highest level and asking people to just give money, I can calculate on the fly 
and subtract and keep track of numbers. And I always joke halfway through as I'm sort of flying through these numbers, telling people exactly where they are, how much more we have to raise and doing it all in my head. I would say, you know, they say that I was, they say that I'm not good at math and everybody laughs and it makes me laugh too, because I'm, I can't tell you how many times I was told that and how I told that to other people. Maybe I just wasn't good at math the way that you guys needed it, but I was good at auctioneering math and that's a different type. So yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a very fun thing to do and I really love it. So I would love to hear about your book. I just, I I'd like the title. Let's hear the title and what was the inspiration for it? The title of the book is The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. When I sold the book to Simon & Schuster, I sold it as the most powerful woman in the room because Mm. that was really the reason I wrote the book. Because as we've been talking about as it pertains to public speaking, you know, before an auction, I sit next to someone at a dinner and then five minutes before I go on stage, someone taps me and I leave that person who has no idea that I'm the auctioneer. We're just sitting next to each other during dinner and I get up on stage and I raise a million dollars and then I come back for dessert. And the person <laughs> next to me is always sort of like, you just what just what? happened? <laughs> and any woman at the table will say to me, how do you do that? I don't understand. How did you just do that? And you seem so confident. And I realized that that's what we all want is that confidence. And I wanted to talk about how I started at the age of 21, not feeling that and how at the age of 41, now I do feel that and auctioneering for me was that vehicle. And so I started writing the book and I called my editors after I'd finished writing a couple of chapters. And I said, can I change the title of this book to the most powerful woman in the room is you? Because although these are stories about my life, this book is for other people to learn, hopefully from the mistakes that I've made and also the things that I've learned along the way. And hopefully it won't take them 20 years to get there. They can cut it down in five. But I do want people to understand that power comes from within. You can want everybody else to think things about you. You can ask other people to look at you differently, but it it isn't until you believe it the way that I believe it when I get on stage that you really feel like the most powerful woman in any room. What has surprised you most about your career? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I think the most surprising part for me has been the last two years writing this book because there were so many things that I wanted to happen in my career. And I say to people all the time, you know, when I was 25, I was just waiting for someone to pluck me off stage and say, you're a star, Lydia, you're going to go so far. And that never happened. I got a lot of offers for the Real Housewives of New York City. I had all these sort of random financial institutions coming up to ask me if I'd come work for their private wealth team. And I kept saying to people, I don't think that's what I want. I don't think that's what I want. And when I finished the book and then I went on the book tour and I just sold the book, I sold the shopping agreement for the book to go to film and TV last week. Like all of these things that I really wanted happened because of the past two years. And again, that was just such an incredible lesson for me about driving towards what you want in life and not waiting around for other people to make it happen for you. So in terms of my career, I mean, I've had the most amazing experiences that you could even dream up. I took the first charity auction in Saudi Arabia last summer Mm, and just very cool. Just these moments that, you know, growing up in a small town in Louisiana, I would never have thought would have happened to me, but I wanted them to, and I dreamed for them. And here we are. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy-to-use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live-streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. 
Unlike other startups, Namastream was created by women for women. If you're looking for a simple, streamlined way to build and grow an online business, you can learn more at namastream.com. So I have a question for you about confidence, about something you said earlier about being the one in the room that to go stand up and raise a million dollars and come back and people are like, how you do that? I think that confidence is all... It's easy to have confidence when you've done something like however many thousands of auctions you've done, like that gives you the confidence. But when you were a young woman and you hadn't done it yet, you had to find that internal belief about yourself to get up on stage and try. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about where does that come from? Like, where did you find that thought about yourself that you can do this? I don't know that I truly felt it. I think I faked it a lot. Mm -hmm. I faked it because I wanted to believe that I could do that. You know, I would see those guys up on stage and I would say, I think I could do it. And I think I could do it better. And then I would get on stage and do exactly what I had seen them do. And so I think the confidence at the beginning came from just emulating what I had seen before. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the book, I talk about this watershed moment in my auctioneering career where... I basically realized that by selling as myself, I could be a more effective auctioneer. And that came as a result of a bad breakup. You know, it's something that anyone can relate to, but being broken up with and seeing a woman who'd been seated next to me at a lunch right after the breakup, sitting right in front of me at an auction. And it's interesting because I hadn't seen her since the breakup, which had probably been four solid years before that. And when I saw her during the auction, I started sort of playfully joking about the fact that she'd been seated next to me during the breakup. And the lot actually happened to be a dinner at her house or a cocktail party at her house. And all of a sudden, the audience, which for the first sort of five years of my auctioneering career had largely ignored me as the auctioneer because I was just taking our auctions like art auctions. So just spouting out the numbers, no jokes, just very formulaic. And all of a sudden, the crowd sort of started laughing and they were paying attention. And I realized that maybe my sense of humor and maybe the fact that I was a young woman could be part of this auctioneering moment. And this actually could be a fun part of what I was doing. And then really diving into that and unpacking it over the years made me feel confident and made me feel excited about what I was doing on stage and it made it really fun. And I think that's what makes it easy. And that's where confidence comes from when you feel like you're being authentic and you can be yourself. What was Saudi Arabia like? If Germany thought that you couldn't do it because you're a woman, what did Saudi Arabia think? Well, it was funny because Saudi Arabia was after Germany. And I had learned the lesson when I, when I was in Munich because I arrived for that auction and I was so freaked out about taking it because I was so worried that they were going to be right. And I almost had to talk myself through my chapters in my book. Like I, I remember getting on stage and thinking to myself, I was so nervous and I kept I kept sort of tripping over my words. And at one point I'd almost stopped. I'd stopped using the word dollars. I mean, excuse me, I was using the word dollars instead of euros while I was selling. And the crowd kept wincing and I couldn't figure out what was going wrong. And then somebody (laughs) sort of said to me, Lydia, Lydia, it's euros, not dollars. And, you know, I just, I froze at that moment. And then I had that sort of, it was honestly the most powerful woman in the room as you book in the back of my head. And I said, what would you do in New York if this happened? if the microphone broke or if you fell or if you tripped over something, God forbid, like, what would you do? I'd make a joke about it, right? Because that's what I do. And so I said to the crowd in the next lot, ladies and gentlemen, I'm terribly sorry to tell you that for the rest of the auction, I'm going to have to take the auction in euros. So you're not going to be getting the discount of dollars tonight, but I think the museum will be a little happier, right? And there's your recovery. And the audience was on my side. And I was reminded, and that auction went so well, they asked me back that night for the next year, 
And that was my lesson learned. So when I got to Saudi Arabia, I didn't know what the crowd would be like. I didn't know if they would laugh at my jokes. I was wearing an abaya to the floor. I felt very unnerved and uncomfortable, but I remembered that experience in Munich. And so I said to the crowd, has anyone ever been to an auction before? And two people raised their hand. And I said, well, really, the only thing you need to know is what you know right now, which is you have to raise your hand to bid. And there we go. And (laughs) people started to laugh. And there was an artist who was also a prince who'd introduced himself to me as a prince. So in the first lot, I, I named him as the artist formerly known as Prince. And everyone laughed. And so I had that moment where I said, you know, this isn't actually any different than taking an auction in New York. And so Maybe I can't say some of the things I would say in New York because I just don't know culturally if they would work, but I can say some of them and I can keep a big smile on my face in the same way that I would and bring that energy. And it was great. And it was really interesting. And I think being there, a lot of the things that I was worried about going over there, I didn't see in the way that I had. And I met some amazing people. So it was a great experience all in all. That's very cool. So I really want to hear about your ideas about entering a room and commanding a room. And of course, your strike method, if you can talk a little bit about <laughs> the that. strike method. I know. I think I have the easiest way to enter a room because I have a gavel. Yeah, well, so yeah. It makes, but it I kind of want to carry easy. one now that I read yeah. it. I'm like, oh, maybe I need one. I think everybody needs Zoom a gavel. Meetings, you know? <laughs> exactly. When people are getting out of control. Yeah. You know, for me, when I started writing the book, I... I was trying to think about how to bring the reader into that moment where I'm going on stage. Then I wrote the first chapter sitting on a plane in the dark, which is actually a lot of times how I start right before an auction. I'm standing backstage. They give me a countdown. You know, Lydia, you have 10 seconds until the auction. And I go out on stage. And the first thing I do every time is slam my gavel down as hard as I can three times. And that immediately makes me feel in control. It makes the audience whip around. Because remember, these are crowds of people who are eating dinner. There's wine. They're talking loudly. So what is it that's going to make them turn around? And for me, it's that gavel strike. But the important thing, and this is what I say to anyone who's trying to enter a room with confidence and command, is to know what you're going to say after that gavel strikes. Because unless you know what you're going to say and you feel like you are coming in from a point of strength, your voice will shake, you'll start to get nervous, and all of those things you worry about will come true because you haven't prepared for that moment after the strike. And so I say to people, look, you're not going to bring a gavel into a room, but you can certainly come up with something that makes you feel strong. You know, is it putting your hand under the table and sort of hitting it once? Is it something, a mental mantra where you're sort of saying to yourself, here we go, I've got this. Whatever it is, what you're trying to do is really laser focus your mind so that you're ready for what comes next. And then once you start talking and once you've got that first sentence in your head, you're ready to go. Yeah, that's cool. I think that entering a room is something that we don't talk about enough. I remember when I was in university, I took a public speaking course and the very first night we were in the theater and we were waiting for the teacher to arrive and this woman entered and I will never forget how she entered the room with such like flourish and confidence and just her posture. And it turns out she was a world-renowned opera singer who was teaching this course. But the way that she entered, and then she taught us about commanding a room and entering and having a presence. And I was like, what? Like I had just never, as a young 20-something, had never even thought of that idea. So I really loved your idea because that moment when she entered the room was like, so powerful to me. Like just, I've never seen a woman do that before. And the thing that I think a lot of people don't think about as well is confidence is infectious. I mean, Mm -hmm. why were you drawn to that woman? You were drawn to her because she was confident and she believed in herself. Yeah, absolutely. I had an old boss who was backstage one night. He was a charity auctioneer. And he said to me that he'd been backstage with this little woman 
who he thought was probably in her mid to late 60s. And he took the auction and he came back and then all of a sudden he turned around and the crowd was going crazy and he realized he'd been standing next to Bette Midler. And he said the difference between her backstage seated on a chair versus the woman who walked down as the Divine Miss M was the difference between night and day. And it's like Beyonce with her Sasha Fierce Mm -hmm. personality. You know, at home, she's Beyonce, but man, when she hits that stage, you know what's coming. And so that's really what the strike method is, sort of finding that inner self and really allowing yourself to make sure that you're amplifying that to a larger degree. I love it. Jenny, did you have a question? Yes, I think you've sort of answered it, but I would love to pose it to you anyway, Lydia. It's It has to do with continually challenging yourself. And it, it seems like your recent foray into Saudi Arabia is maybe one of those ways that you do that. But as someone who obviously was drawn to a challenge and developed expertise in a certain skill set and has continued to grow in her career, what challenges you now and how do you find new opportunities to grow as a leader and as as someone in her career at this stage that you've already achieved so much? You know, my New Year's resolution this year, I had two. One was to be fully present with my family and my children, my parents, my siblings, and always just when I'm in a, in a place to be present because last year was such a whirlwind with everything that was going on. But the other one was to not be scared, which I think sometimes is the biggest thing that we face. I mean, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia being a good example, I was petrified. I mean, I got off the plane there and my entire body was shaking. I was so scared because I didn't know what I was coming up against. I didn't know what I was about to face when I arrived. And I think for me, you know, going into this new film and TV area that I know very little about and being protective of, you know, my reputation and and the message that I want to put out there and making sure that it's on point to me has been a huge challenge and something that I really had to overcome because it is scary to think about putting yourself out there to that degree. And I think even in my role as a leader, I'm always trying to challenge myself because I want my team to feel challenged too. And I'm constantly saying to them, figure out something that you don't know something about, but that it interests you. Because learning Excel for me, it's something that I have to do. I don't enjoy it. It's not going to challenge me in a way that I want to be challenged. I want something that challenges me in a way I want to get out of bed to try it and to push it forward, even if it does make me scared. So I really would encourage anyone listening to think about what those challenges look like in your life and to do that goal setting in front of you. Frankly, whether or not you hit it, it's about the journey of trying that actually teaches you more than actually hitting that goal in the end. And failing, right? And being okay with failing and getting up and trying it differently or iterating or you know, whatever, but also like know that you won't always succeed, that sometimes there are going to be misses and that's just part of it as well. I know. And it's so funny. I feel like people say, you know, at failure, if you don't, at first you don't succeed, like get up and try and try and try again. And I always say, you know, there's an end point of that too, where you're sort of like, and then sometimes it's just never going to work out. (laughs) And you have to understand that that's okay too. And that there may be a different opportunity or a different way of doing something that you didn't first see. But again, sometimes it will not work out and you just have to be okay with that too. And that's part of challenging yourself. I just wanted to know, you are obviously employed by Christie's, right? And then you have your own business with the whole book and the all the TV deals and everything, right? So what is that like as to become, you know, you're an auctioneer and now you're an entrepreneur? Have you always wanted some sort of side hustle and, you know, doing your own thing? My own role within Christie's was a department that I started after being here for 10 years. So I think now people throw around the word entrepreneur a lot, but Actually, I've been an entrepreneur at Christie's for the past 10 years, starting strategic partnerships and scaling it globally. So I think for me, there's always this need to create more. And I truly believe, I say this to my team all the time, 
find something that's outside of what you do because ultimately it will feed back in if all of the things that you're doing are things that you love. So for me, having the book and having the TV and film deal, these are all just extensions of the job that I already do. And for Christie's, it's great because it puts us out there in a much larger way to an audience that may not be aware of the auction world as it is. Because the auction world, the way that it looks right now, we always say that the New York Times does all of our PR for us because if we sell something for the crazy amount of money, to the average person, that's on the front page of the New York Times. But we also sell things for less than you would buy something at Pottery Barn. So there's that message that we want to get out too. And by allowing me to be in this role and be out there amongst people and raising money for charity, I mean, these are all great things for the company too. So I like to say that it all, you know, rising tide floats all boats. So that's the way that we look at it over here. Yeah, that's cool. So what are you going to do next? What's your one-year and 10-year plan? So my one-year plan is to really continue growing my department internally, continuing taking auctions, but also develop this film and TV idea. I'm an executive producer on the show, which is exciting because it's really a lot of lessons learned real time. And then my 10-year career is really, I hope I will still be Christie's because I love Christie's and I hope I will always be here. But more books, you know, I want to continue do, doing keynote speaking, which I absolutely love. And I, write, I hope to write more books and then, you know, obviously syndicate my new TV show that's going to be coming out. So can you just talk about that? Like who who does that? How do you do you, you have a book deal first, obviously that's published. So who do you talk to if you want to go for TV and film? So in this case, no, in this case, actually, someone I work with had given the book to a producer as a friend, and she read it and contacted him and said, could you put me in touch with Lydia? And that's how the whole thing started. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had actually signed with CAA, which is an agency in LA, because of the speaking side of my book, because I've been on stage for so long. It was a very easy extension for me to be on stage and speak, because I'm already on stage all the time anyway, so why not just do it in a more sort of routine way? But learning through the speaking that there were more opportunities in film and TV helped drive those conversations as well. And so then I got an agent for film and TV as well from CAA that works with me on creating the film and TV deal. And so that's kind of how that all happened. But yeah, I mean, I, two years ago, you could have asked me any of these things and I would have said I have absolutely no idea. So for me, it's a huge learning curve. But as I said, I'm putting fear aside and just going full throttle. And it seems to be the best way to make things happen. If I'm any indication. <laughs> just say yes and figure it out, right? Absolutely. You can always figure it out. You can always ask questions of other people. Someone has the answer. A lot of questions, it's just finding the person who knows the right way to do it. So Jenny, I want to just like, we have an idea for a book and we've always said we're going to do it. So now I'm just going to do add it. to the list, TV and film deal, Jenny. Are you good with that? Yes. <laughs> Reality TV show. No, no. <laughs> you no, not a reality <laughs> Scripted, scripted. This must be scripted and pre-proved yes. <laughs> prior exactly. to release. Yeah. I'll no, I, the book, you should write the book. People always yeah, say, oh, I could never do it. Yeah. Write the book. I wrote the book mm -hmm. when I wrote my entire book in three months while nursing my third child. And so if I could do that, and I was still mm -hmm. taking auctions at night and working during the day, yeah. anyone can do it. A thousand words a day. I love I it. I have an idea that we need to have everything sorted in our business and running without us before we can write the book. And I think that's going to like never, ever happen. So yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah. Nothing yeah. ever happens in the way that you think it's going to happen. Yeah. Lydia, this is just so helpful to hear as someone who has wrestled with a lot of ambition and feelings around ambition in my life and in my career. I'm just so thrilled to hear your story and learn about you and to share your story with our audience because I think it's so easy to hide behind 
fear or to feel like it's too late or to feel like we can't do both. I have a job. I can't also then go and build a business or write a book on the side. And you're such a powerful example of it's possible to be a parent and to have a job and to write a book and to sell a TV show and to go on stage around the world and to do something you've never done, constantly making new challenges for yourself. So thank you for sharing that. It's just such a powerful example of what's possible for all of us. I'm so glad. And honestly, it it has been the greatest lesson that I've learned from this book. You're the only person who can do it. So if you want to write a book, write a book. If you want that book to be a TV and film thing, start talking about it to everyone you know. These things are possible. It's just that you have to be the person who drives it because no one does it for you. That is the truth. No one does it for you. That's right. I love it. Well, I would love if you could share a joy and a hustle. We end every episode with a joy and a hustle. So something that brings you joy in your life right now, and also a tool to help our listeners hustle in their careers. Honestly, there's nothing I love more. If I were to put it in the joy bucket is spending time with my kids. And I can't even explain to you how many ways that rejuvenates me because there are so many things going on in my life. So if nothing else, just falling asleep in bed with them because I'm really tired at the end of the night and they're asleep too is always a really wonderful joy and a moment of happiness for me. And then in terms of hustle, I mean, my hustle is every day. I just say that there's never enough hustle. And again, you are the only person who can hustle. So go out there and do it. And don't look back and don't look to the side. Don't think about what other people are thinking about you or saying about you. Think about what you want from your life and make every single day the day that you want it to be. Awesome. What a great place to end. Thank you, Lydia. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. And where can people find you if they want to learn more? So really Instagram is my main vehicle for my message and for just sort of living a really fun and interesting dynamic life in New York. So Lydia Finette at Lydia Finette. And the book is The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, which is available in a number of independent bookstores, which I always hope people will buy through independent bookstores. Um, And obviously on Amazon as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And TV show coming soon. TV show coming soon. More updates to come. I have a website, lydiafinette.com. So you can find things on there as well. Awesome. Thank you, Lydia. Such a great conversation. I appreciate you being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me on the show. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free.